Thank you, Sandra, and thank you, Anna. Uh, thank you, congregation. Thank you for coming out all weekend long to hear these messages, this now being the fourth and final message. Uh, absolutely miserable weather, but you came out to hear the messages nonetheless. I think everybody can look out the window and see what is clearly an example on March 27th of global warming. So I'm glad we've got that going for us. Uh, <laughs> um, I would like to introduce a friend of mine who has come to worship with us today. His name is Henry Thompson. He's in the very back there. I met Henry, first of all, at Mahaffey Camp. Uh, we uh, were uh, there together as uh, students uh, from various Christian Missionary Alliance churches, and we gather uh, in the summer at camp at Mahaffey. Uh, Henry went on to Nyack College. We stayed in touch while we were there. And I believe uh, the last time I saw Henry was in early May of 1987. Uh, he looks about the same. Looks good. So, Henry lived in Zelianople. Thank you for, uh, thank you for making your way over here and I look forward to fellowshipping with you. This morning, I'm going to be speaking on the subject of evangelism, but I'm going to be looking at it from uh, a slightly different angle than perhaps what you might expect. Uh, most sermons that I have heard about evangelism have been with the uh, rationale from the scripture that we do it because we are commanded to do it. And that is not a bad thing that the Lord has commanded us to do it. Uh, other evangelistic messages that I've heard are driven by perhaps the idea that those who do so have beautiful feet, or there is the flawless logic of how shall they hear without a preacher, or there are messages on apologetics whereby we are told that if anybody would ask us for the reason of the hope within us, we need to be able to give an answer with meekness and with fear, and none of these approaches to evangelism are wrong or bad. I have preached them myself in the past, I will probably preach them that way in the future. But today, I would like to look at the subject of evangelism from the angle of restoration. Now, what is restoration? Restoration is bringing things back to the way that they used to be. Restoration is bringing things back to the way that they are supposed to be. Let me illustrate this. Several years ago, I went into the barber to get my hair cut. Uh, my barber is not from the United States, he's from another country, as he is cutting my hair, get the picture, he is standing behind me, he is cutting my hair, there is a mirror in front of me, and I am able to watch what he is doing, in the midst of cutting my hair, one of his friends, who speaks his native tongue, came into the barbershop and sat directly behind him, I kid you not, as he is cutting my hair, he turns, I guess to be polite, and has a conversation with his friend who is sitting behind him. He is cutting my hair while not looking at my head. They're having a good time of fellowship. I, meanwhile, am looking at this mirror and saying to myself, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. At the end of the haircut, I needed what? Restoration. I needed things to go back the way they were before. What we have in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, is a story about 
restoration. Allow me please to pray for us and then we will get right into the text. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have in Jesus Christ complete and full restoration. We thank you that that which Adam and the devil and the world and our own sinful hearts have destroyed, the Lord, you have promised to restore and to make all things new. We thank you, Lord, that this comes about through the power of your gospel. We thank you that it is sure, and we pray with confidence that this will happen. And yet, Lord, as we see it happen, we stand in awe of our great God and the way that you work in our lives. And so, Lord, today, I would ask that not only would we understand restoration, uh, Lord, I pray that we would feel and celebrate within our hearts how you have restored us in Christ. Then, Lord, I pray that we would be bold to take this message to those who have heard it not, the Lord, those who ultimately need restoration, salvation of their soul. And so, Lord, cause us today to understand and to be interested, but more than that, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to leave this place and be doers of the word. Let this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 8, we're going to be looking at the first six verses. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn or travel wherever you can. Why? For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So, the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. A little bit of background here. The story is about Elisha. He's the one who came after Elijah. Elisha, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, is the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible. Uh, he had a ministry in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he would travel about, and this woman that is mentioned here, whom he warned to leave, is known as the Shunammite woman. Uh, she's from a place called Shunam. I find it very ironic that the Shunammite woman would be from Shunam. Just like I find it very ironic that Lou Gehrig got Lou Gehrig's disease. What are the chances? So, the Shunammite woman is from Shunam, and her story is this. She knows that Elisha is traveling through her region. And so what she does is she and her generous husband build a room on the top of their house so that when Elisha is passing through, he will have a place to stay. We read about this in 2 Kings chapter 4. The prophet was very appreciative of what the woman and her husband had done, and so he said to her, Is there anything now that I can do for you? The woman said, No, I have everything that I need. I dwell among my people. You don't have to do anything for me. But Elisha's servant, Gehazi, or Gehazi, depending on how you want to pronounce it, I'll call him Gehazi, says to Elisha, No, there is something that the woman needs, and that is the fact that she is getting a little bit older, and her husband is already old, and they don't have any children. She would like to have a child. And so, Elisha says to the woman, a year from now, you're going to have a child. Fade in, fade out. The little boy comes into their life. The little boy starts to grow up. One day, the little boy is out in the field working with his father. 
He begins to complain of a headache. He walks into the house, falls up on his mother's lap, and there he dies in her arms. She then carries the little boy up the stairs into the room for uh, which was made for Elisha. Elisha was not there. Elisha was 16 miles away at Mount Carmel. The woman travels to Mount Carmel. She finds the prophet. She tells the prophet what has happened. And Elisha, probably not as fleet of foot at this time, says to his servant, Gehazi, here's my staff. Go back to the house. Don't stop. Don't greet anybody. Get there as fast as you can. Lay the staff across the little boy. The woman and I will be there shortly. And Elisha and the woman make the 16-mile walk from Mount Carmel back to Shunem. Then Elisha walks into the room, and in what is probably the most unusual prayer meeting in the Bible, he raises the little boy to life. That is the woman that is being referred to here. What happens four chapters later in Second Kings chapter 8 is that Elisha gets word from the Lord that there's going to be a famine. Now, this is not your everyday run-of-the-mill famine. It's going to be a seven-year famine. Put this into perspective. Back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a famine that lasted three and a half years, and in a three and a half year famine, people were dying because they did not have enough to eat. What's going to happen during a seven-year famine? And by the way, the reason for the famine was covenant unfaithfulness on the part of the people of Israel. God had promised his people that if you are in obedience to the covenant, one of the blessings will be that it will rain. Food will grow, and you'll have plenty to eat. If you break the covenant, one of the covenant curses, it will stop raining, there will be a famine, there won't be enough to eat. So, Israel is in sin at this time. There is a famine that is coming. Elisha says, really doesn't matter where you go, you just can't stay here. Gives her fair warning, and she and her family leave for seven years and go into the land of the Philistines. That's who we are talking about here. Continuing, continuing in verse 3. At the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now, what has happened is the woman leaves for seven years, but someone goes in, confiscates her property, someone is living in her house, Probably it's the government, nothing ever changes, probably it's the government, this is the reason why she is appealing to the king. The king that she is going to appeal to here is King Jehoram, and she wants to get her property back. Verse 4. Verse 4, I can read the English words to you, I can explain to you what these words mean. I will never in a million lifetimes be able to tell you why verse 4 occurred. It is one of the most strange and unusual verses in all the Bible. Now the king, that is King Jehoram, was talking with Gehazi. He is the defrock clergyman who used to be the servant of Elisha. Uh, he is no longer the servant of Elisha because... He tried to extort money from the Syrian general, Naaman, Naaman who was healed of leprosy, and then Gehazi tried to extort money from him, and as a result of his greed, he himself got leprosy. And so you have this king 
was a wicked king talking to this man who used to be the servant of Elijah, and they're having a conversation, and what is it that the king wants to know? Verse 4. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. This is odd. This is extremely strange. It's strange for several reasons. First of all, because this is a wicked king who has no regard for God. I don't know why all of a sudden he was interested in these things. It is also strange because he is choosing to go to a leper to get this information. It is also strange because this king has on multiple occasions tried to kill Elisha. And it is also strange because this king himself with his own eyes, has witnessed some of these miracles. Nevertheless, we're not sure of the setting, or, or I'm sure that, 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 that Gehazi is not standing that close to him, seeing as how he is a leper. But nevertheless, there is a meeting between King Jehoram and Gehazi, and the king says, I would like you to reiterate for me all of the wonderful works that Elisha has done. Even though I myself do not follow this god, even though I myself have tried to kill this prophet, I would like you to tell me everything that the Lord has done through this prophet, Elisha. Verse 5. And while, W-H-I-L-E, the entire passage hinges on this one word. Get this one word and the rest of the passage makes sense. Miss it and it doesn't compute at all. Look at verse 5, and while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, and anytime you see the word behold in scripture, it means paint a picture in your mind's eye, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman. And here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. Uh, do, do, you, do you see what happened in the chronology here? King goes to Gehazi, asks for an account. As he's giving the account of the things that Elisha has done, and when he is telling the exact story of the woman whose son had been raised to life, at that exact moment, the woman and her son appealed to the king for the house and for the property, and... Gehazi says, well, there they are. They are right here. This is the woman that I am telling you about right now. Not sure exactly what the conversation looked like. It might have been something like this. So, King, you want me to tell you everything that Elisha has done. Well, where do I start? Well, first of all, when the prophet who was before him, the great Elijah, was taken up into heaven... His mantle fell from the chariot, and you know the story, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. As the chariot is going up, the mantle falls down, and Elisha catches it. He uses it to part the waters of the Jordan River, and he crosses over the Jordan River into Jericho. When he gets there, the water is undrinkable. He throws salt in the water, and the water becomes sweet. From there, he moves on to Bethel. As he's moving on to Bethel, there are some young people that go out and begin to mock him because he is bald. All of a sudden, two she-bears come out of the woods, and they small 42 of these young people. 
There are other things that this man has done. King, I can't even begin to tell you all of them, but you were there for one of them. You remember that when we were on that military journey and we had run out of water. Remember how without a river and without rain, Elisha was able to produce water. We were able to have a drink and then that water looked like blood. Our enemies were lured out and we defeated them. There was another case, King, remember, where we were surrounded. Our city was surrounded. Elisha said to me, those who are for us are more than those that are for them. I was able to see angels on the mountainside that struck the entire army with blindness. And they were led before you, King. You saw them walking into our presence, and they were blind. There was another time when there was some stew, and the stew was poisonous. Those that were eating it were probably going to die. Elisha puts flour into the stew, and it becomes edible. There was another time when there was a borrowed access. You were down at the Jordan River. The axe fell into the water, and I saw it with my own eyes. He waves a stick above the water, and the axe had floats. King, there were so many stories. In fact, the one that affected me the most was the fact that he healed a man by the name of Naaman. He told him to go wash. He washed. He was clean. I tried to extort money from him. As a result, I got his leprosy. King, I could be here all day telling you all of the stories about Elisha and all of the things that he had done. But by far, King, the strangest thing that I ever saw was there was this little boy. And I'm telling you, King, he wasn't sick, he wasn't injured, he wasn't wounded, he was dead. He was cold, he was blue, he was purple, he was dead. He was laying on this bed. And Elisha got on top of him and prayed for this little boy, and he got up. I'm telling you, I saw the dead raised to life. That's him. That's him. While he is telling the story, W-H-I-L-E, the woman and her son walk into the room as they are being talked about after being absent for seven years. This is a really strange story. Verse 6. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So, the king wants to check the facts, make sure it's right. She told him. So, what did the king do? So, the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore, there's our word for the day, restore, get things back the way they used to be, restore all that was hers, together with all, A-L-L, all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, not only is she going to get her house back, not only is she going to get her land back, but anything that would have grown on that land for the last seven years, I want you to give it to the woman. Give it back to her. It is all to be restored. She experiences complete restoration of her house and her land. How did this come about? Well, I want to give you three points this morning, and I want to direct all of those points toward evangelism. First of all, I would like you to note that our glorious message is always controlled by the design of providence. Our message is always controlled by the design of providence. What is providence? Well, 
providence is God's absolute control over all things. It is God orchestrating the movement of the largest planet and the movement of the smallest molecule and everything in between. It is the fact that God is sovereign and that he rules over all. Listen to the description given of providence in the abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Seminary. Article 4. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures, end quote, and well said. Providence. God is controlling the movement of everyone and everything. He has a lock on everything, L-O-C-K, Limits, orders, controls, and knows all things. Or as the Westminster Confession says, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And since God is sovereign, and since he operates through providence, there is no such thing as luck. For if luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. So, young people today like to speak about events, and they say, well, that was so random. Well, in reality, there is nothing that is random. Everything is by design. One of my personal pet peeves, and I think I understand what people mean when they say this, but it is still, nonetheless, bothersome to an old man like me, is when something will happen and it will turn out well, they will say, that was such a God thing. And I will say, amen, hallelujah, that was a God thing. However, can you tell me anything that is not a God thing? Uh, since God is sovereign, all things, by definition, then, are God things. Nothing is left to chance. Uh, 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 Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. Providence is a friend to restoration. What are the mathematical chances that after seven years, roughly 2,550 days, on the exact day, at the exact hour, at the exact moment when Gehazi is telling the story of the Shunammite woman, that at that moment, the Shunammite woman and her son would walk into the presence of the king. It wasn't choreographed. It wasn't played out ahead of time between the Shunammite woman and Gehazi. What are the odds, mathematically, of that happening? A hundred to one? Now, I think the odds are better. Probably the odds of that happening are more like a billion to one. So you're telling me there's a chance. Actually, the chances are not able to be calculated that at the exact moment that he would be telling that story. But I would say this. If God is the one who is directing traffic, then the chances of that happening are 100%. And in this case, and in all cases, God is the one who is directing traffic. You see, the doctrine of providence is a friend to evangelism. And quite frequently, we who believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation will be criticized because we will be accused of saying, since we believe in providence, therefore we use it as an excuse not to evangelize, and we come up with this conclusion that 
Well, since the elect will be saved, what is the need to evangelize anyway for whatever will be, will be, Doris Day, and the alternative to that would be whatever will be, will not be, which is absolute absurdity. And since we believe whatever will be, will be, therefore we do not evangelize. And sadly, there are some who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation who actually may not say that they believe that, by their actions, uh, by their actions, I mean that they do not evangelize, they are demonstrating that they have a fatalistic view of salvation and don't evangelize, and thus the criticism which we would receive is well-founded. When in reality, I would say that the doctrine of providence is a great friend to, and a great comfort to, those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, knowing that every encounter that we ever have during the course of our entire lives is happening, not randomly, but is happening by divine appointment. Every person that you have a confluence with, an intersection with, has been designed by God. Some of those relationships are permanent like your husband or your wife, your father or your mother, your sibling. Some of those encounters are temporary, like someone you will sit beside on an airplane or someone that you will just run into in the store, and everything in between. All of those encounters are by design, and they are there for a purpose. In other words, we are always where we are because God is directing our steps. Making genuine choices, we are not coerced, they are volitional choices. However, they are at the same time directed by God. And it's not just the coming together, the person that you sit beside on the airplane, but it is everything that has happened up until that point, which is directed by divine providence. Your background, your education, your vocabulary, your interests, their interests, their vocabulary, where they are in life. We are always connecting with people by design, and God is the one that has designed it. Let me see if I can illustrate it in this way, as it always is a part of God's plan. And you do see where I'm getting this from the text, do you not? That the exact moment when the Gehazi is speaking about the Shunammite woman, she happens to walk in with her son at that exact moment. That is, that is providence. Let me give you uh, an illustration of this. Several years ago, I had a friend who was, um, he was actually born in Sweden. Uh, his father was a scientist. He was an atheist. He came to the United States. Uh, he's from a Jewish background. Uh, he spends some time in the military. Uh, he gets injured in the military. He begins to have a little bit of a rough life, and he becomes uh, a heroin addict and he is homeless. This is in another state. It's not even in the state I live in. For years, I tried to bring the gospel to this man, and always unsuccessfully. Uh, and all the years that I knew him, I was only able to invite him to come to church once. And he said when he went to that church service, that was the first time he had ever been in a church in his life. So, he's a heroin addict, he's an atheist, and he is homeless. One day he's out, and he's strung out on drugs, and he wanders into traffic, and he gets hit by a car. 
taken to the hospital where they begin to care for him. Two things they need to do. Number one, they need to fix his leg because he was hit pretty hard by the car. Secondly, they need to dry him out because he is strung out on heroin. So he spends a long time in this hospital. When he goes in, it is soon discovered that the clothes that he is wearing are not going to be able to be returned to him. Uh, they are too filthy. Uh, he's going to need a different wardrobe when he leaves the hospital. So, for the weeks that he is in the hospital, he's wearing nothing but a hospital gown. And there's a nurse that takes care of him. This nurse is not a Christian, but she is a kind individual. And she's caring for him week after week. She develops a relationship with him and, and is concerned about him, realizing when it is time for him to be released that he doesn't have any clothes to wear. And so she contacts one of her mother's friends and she says, you are about the same size as this man. Would you give me some of your clothes so that when he leaves the hospital, he will have something to wear. The man donates the clothes. The man leaves the hospital and is transported to a rehab facility 40 miles away from the hospital. I hadn't heard from the man in a couple of months. He calls me up and he says, you're not going to believe where I was for the last couple of months. He tells me the story and he says, now I am in this town at this rehab center. And I thought to myself, okay, I know some people in that town that are Christian. I'm going to contact them, and I'm going to have them come by and visit. And I'm going to have them try to evangelize, and, and to be kind, and to be merciful. And so I start a group text with 16 people. Here's the story. At such and such rehab center, there is such and such a man. If you have an opportunity... Would you please go by and visit this man and try to share the gospel with him? A couple of minutes later, a woman who is on that group text texts the group back and says this, I know who this man is. My daughter, who is unsaved, has been caring for him in the hospital for the past two months. I know who he is. And I don't live far from this rehab center. We will go visit him. A few minutes later, another man chimes in on the text. He's the man who donated his clothes so that this man would have something to wear. And he texts and says, I'm on my way to the rehab center right now. I don't know this man. I don't know what he looks like. But I'm just going to go in and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. Long story short, these 16 people maniacally bombard this man with love and the gospel. And at first, he was having to call me and say, will you please call off the dog? These people are, are so aggressive in telling me about Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. They wear him down, and he eventually... He's regenerated, gives his life to Christ, repents of his sins, and is saved. And in sharing his testimony afterwards, he said to me, the one thing which I could not get out of my mind 
which I could not shake, is what were the mathematical probabilities of this nurse knowing someone who would give me those clothes and they would be the same people that would come to visit me. The mathematical odds of that happening were too great. I had to conclude there is a God. And once I concluded that there is a God who is directing traffic, I was open to hear the story, the message of his son dying for sinners. Friends, providence is a friend to evangelism. And the reason I say that to you today is this. You're going to go out. You're going to live your life. You're going to go where you're going to go. As you're going, please know that there is a God and He is directing your steps. And those that you come in contact with are not there randomly. They're there for a reason. And therefore, be aware of the providence of God and use the opportunities that you have with the people that you work with, with the people that you live with, with the people that you just happen to encounter casually for a moment or two and give them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ because you have been directed there by God. Restoration is brought about, our glorious message is propelled through the doctrine of providence. Secondly, secondly, I would like you to notice that our glorious message is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. Our glorious message is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. But what was the worst pain that the Shunammite woman ever experienced? Well, clearly it was the death of her son. In fact, I, I, I don't want to think about it that long. I, I, I can't meditate upon this too long. I cannot imagine what she felt as she walked 16 miles to Mount Carmel with a dead son laying on Elisha's bed back in her house, and then 32 miles in total, walking all the way back. The pain that this mother must have experienced is unimaginable. Now, why is that pain an important ingredient in bringing about ultimate restoration? Because if the king was having a private meeting with Gehazi, and Gehazi was telling all of the great works of Elisha, and a woman comes into the presence of the king and interrupts their meeting, the king would probably look at her and say, who are you? Well, my property was taken away. Well, get in line, ma'am. We just had a seven-year famine. I'm not going to be able to help you. If this woman never experienced the death of her son, there would never be anything distinguishable about her. There would never be anything unusual about her. And the king would not have heard her. The only reason the king hears her is because something miraculous has happened in her life and nothing miraculous happens in her life without first having the pain of losing her son. Consider the story of Joseph and how pain plays into that story. If Joseph is not the favorite, then he's not hated by his brothers. If he's not hated by his brothers, he never gets sold into slavery. If he never gets sold into slavery, he never goes to Egypt. If he never goes to Egypt. He never meets Potiphar. He never meets Potiphar. He never meets Potiphar's wife. He doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. He is never accused falsely of rape. 
and all excuse of rape. He doesn't go to jail. He doesn't go to jail. He doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, then he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream. If he doesn't do that, then the cupbearer doesn't know that his dream can be interpreted. If he doesn't know that, then Pharaoh's dream never gets interpreted. And if Pharaoh's dream never gets interpreted, then Pharaoh will squander all of the food that is grown during the years of plenty. And if he does that, then there will be no food in Egypt. And if there is no food in Egypt, then when Joseph's family begins to get hungry, they will starve. And if they get hungry and starve, then they will die. And if they die, then his brother Judah will die. And if his brother Judah dies, then there will be no lion of the tribe of Judah. There will be no King David. There will be no King David's greater son. And if there is no King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to hell, and so are you. Now, you can look at any aspect of the life of Joseph with blinders, right? And you can say, why is this happening? I mean, here I am. I'm in, a, I'm in jail for something I didn't even do. The guy has forgotten about me. I'm stuck in here for two years. What is going on? If you look at any isolated item of pain in your life, it seems to be an annoyance and meaningless. However, when the blinders are removed and we get into our Romans 8 helicopter and lift off and we see the panorama of everything that God is doing, that he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose, then we can say, aha, I see now that that pain, although at the time was painful, was a necessary ingredient to get me to where we now are. Without the pain of her son dying, her land is never sure. Consider the greatest pain that the world has ever known. The eternal Son of God having done no wrong, no violence or deceit was in his mouth. But yet, when they got done pulverizing him, Isaiah said, his visage was marred over than any man. He didn't look like a human being when they got done pummeling him. Not just the physical pain of being flogged, not, not just the emotional pain of being shamed, with a crown of thorns and a reed in his hand and a purple robe on his back and, and being spat upon and, and mocked, Hail, King of the Jews. Not just the shame of hanging in public naked for six hours, but the pain of taking my sin. All of it. Not in part, but the whole. All of it transferred to him. So what Martin Luther said was absolutely true. Jesus was the greatest sinner that ever lived. Although he himself never committed a sin, he bore in his body our sins upon the tree. And so as Christ is hanging upon Mount Calvary, suffering not only in his body, suffering not only the shame, suffering not only abandonment, strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee, but he is bearing in his body our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
So as he hangs there on the cross, having never committed a sin, he is as filthy as any child molester or rapist or terrorist or extortioner or homosexual or drunkard or liar who ever lived. For he is bearing their sins. But it is not only the pollution of our sins being placed upon Christ, The worst part, by far, is the pain of being crushed by the wrath of the Father. Propitiating God's wrath by dying in our place, and God, for six hours, rolling up his sleeve and hammering his son to death for our sin. Pain such as the world has never known. Pain such as the world will never know again. Pain which we cannot imagine, and even the words that I'm using, I am not even getting to the fringes of describing the pain that he went through. Yet, if it wasn't for that pain, we would know torment and pain in hell forever. But the just for the unjust, because he took our place, his pain is my restoration. Our glorious message must always be accompanied with an understanding of God's providence. Our glorious message must always be accompanied with an understanding that it flourishes in the garden of pain. But finally, and most importantly, our glorious message of restoration must always be accompanied with a demonstration of divine power. See, it isn't ultimately that Christ died for our sins. Amen, he did. But if he dies for our sins and yet stays in the grave, then in reality our sins are not paid for. We know that our sins are paid for because God accepted that payment in raising his son from the dead. It is the power of a risen son. It's not just the woman who comes walking into the presence of King Jehoram. The woman, if she comes walking in by herself into the presence of King Jehoram, says, who's this? Oh, King, this woman is very benevolent. She is very charitable. He has a very good heart. In fact, that house, she's asking to get back. Well, King, show you the floor plans here. There's a second room on top of that house. And she, their own money, spent that money so that my old master could have a place to stay. What the king would have said? That's very nice. I commend you. But I can't help. No. The reason that that woman could get an audience with the king and receive restoration of her goods is because, not her own merit, but because there was a risen son standing beside her. Now, if you follow the argument from the lesser to the greater, objectively it says this. If a wicked king, hearing the testimony of a leprous defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he didn't even know, 
based upon a boy who was dead and is now alive, but a boy who would eventually die again, how much more will a loving, eternal, intentional God grant ultimate, eternal restoration to His elect when He sees His perfect, eternal Son standing by our side, proof of our justification. He was raised again for our justification. A Son who is alive and who will be alive forevermore. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. What is my plea before the throne of God above? It is not my piety. It is not my tears. It is the fact that there is one standing beside me who took my sin and one who is alive forevermore. Jehoram wasn't looking at the merits of the woman. He was looking at her risen son. God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. What does this have to do with our evangelism? Let me move from the objective to the subjective. If there is going to be restoration to the lost sinners to whom we speak, there's going to be a new birth. There's going to be regeneration. At the end of the day, it is 100% contingent upon the power of God. You, you take this message to people who are madly in love with themselves and madly in love with their sins and who are dead in their trespasses and sins and have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. They are dull. They are deaf. They are disinterested. They don't understand, for there is none that understands. They are not seeking after God. They are hell-bent on hell. You come to them with a message that says, God is holy. You have offended this God by your sin. God loves sinners. He sent his Son to take care of sinners. Jesus died for sinners and rose again. What is it that takes this person? I mean, it really is bizarre, isn't it? That someone is completely disinterested. They hate Christ and they hate Christians. They would not want to be with us. And all of a sudden, there's this change in them. How does this change come about? It comes about through the power of a risen son, whereby he regenerates or gives resurrection power to that heart. And all of a sudden, holy smokes. I'm not feeling the same way I used to feel. I'm feeling bad about my life. I am no longer satisfied, but I am dissatisfied. I no longer have a conscience which is cold, but now I'm starting to feel what's known as conviction. How does that happen? Like, are you enough of an influencer that you can influence someone's heart to change? No, it happens through the power of the gospel. And that's why we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel. And that's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the oomph, it is the power of God unto salvation. So you get this message of a risen Christ to someone who's dead and God breathes life into them and they come out of the tomb and all of a sudden they've got this conviction. And all of a sudden they are worried about hell. 
They were never even thinking about eternity before. But through the power of the gospel, now they are really concerned. And the Jesus, who was irrelevant to them, now becomes beautiful. And they run to this Christ, and they run to this Christ with everything in them, and they cry out, Oh God, save Oh Jesus, save And they sincerely bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and God has mercy upon them, and they are different. For if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How does it happen? It happens through the power of a risen son. So, you're going to leave here today. And you're going to go wherever you want to go. Praise God. You're not being coerced to go anywhere. As you go, realize that every step you are taking is directed by the divine providence of God. And you are going to come in touch with other people. These are people whom God has created. They are image bearers of God. They are going to spend eternity somewhere. And you know what these people need? They need restoration. You know what our job is? It is to tell them about the risen Christ and the pain that he suffered in place of sinners on Mount Calvary. And then you know what our job is? is to rest in the power of that risen Son, just as he was raised from the dead to raise them to life. And when you see it, it is really a beautiful thing. And when you go back and you retrace it, you say, aha, aha, look at how all of this worked together. So friends, I encourage you today, with boldness and with confidence, take this glorious message to those that do not know Christ. Take it with confidence, knowing that God, who raised Shunammite's son, God, who raised his own son, will raise his people to life. It is the power of the risen son that gives our gospel Amen? Amen. Alright. Father in heaven, thank you that you have assembled these people here today, your people, your beautiful church, and thank you, Lord, that they have been attentive to the word. It seems as though they have understand, understood what has been presented to them. Uh, Lord, for them and for myself, I now pray that as we leave here, uh, Lord, that we will please, uh, see ourselves as ministers of reconciliation and that, Lord, you will guide us to the people whom you are calling unto salvation. I pray that we will not shrink back or be ashamed. I pray, dear Lord, we will go with love and with confidence and that, uh, Lord, we will see your church filled, uh, Lord, with people that have come to know Christ because your powerful gospel has been at work. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us. Uh, Lord, there are many others that need rescuing. Uh, please use us to be agents of that rescue. This we ask in the name of our friend and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.